Welcome to FX and Focus, where our mission is to celebrate the talent and ideas that contribute to the global B2B payments industry. Join us as we ask Corpay cross-border leadership pressing questions and capture their vision on a variety of topics. I'm Rob Bensick, and you're listening to this week's episode, Whiplash, 2023 Currency Outlook. As markets shift, corporate treasurers and CFOs need to keep up. So there's plenty to talk about and a lot to unpack. We'd love to hear your feedback and suggestions. So please email us at podcast at corpay.com. The opinions expressed on FX and Focus are those of the speakers only and do not necessarily reflect the views of Corpay or Fleet Corps Inc. Today, we've got uh, a new individual on our podcast. Everybody welcome Peter Dragicevich. And of course, uh, joining us as usual is Carl Shimoda and Karthik Sankaran. First question, I suppose, is for the broader group. 2022 looked like it was setting up to be a banner year for the USD, but we saw a substantial reversal of many of those trends in the fourth quarter. Uh, Let's start with you, Karthik. What happened? Um, well, obviously, the big story last year was the Russian imp- invasion of Ukraine and the impact it had on energy prices. And, uh, you know, because of the shale revolution in the U.S., the U.S. has become much more energy independent over the last decade. And the markets really rewarded the dollar for this. You know, towards the end of 2022, fears of a global slowdown and especially warm weather in Europe had brought down energy prices well off their peaks and critically gas, which was the big one for Europe. And that eroded a lot of the dollar's advantage against currencies of, of the big energy importers um, like the euro and also the yen. So that's a part of it, definitely. Yeah, and, and to follow on from Karthik's observations about an ebbing in global energy shocks, it's also clear that the, the worldwide economic map uh, sort of began to shift in fourth quarter 2022. So like coming out of the pandemic, the U.S. was the obvious global growth leader. You had, you know, the after effects of a historic surge, fiscal and monetary stimulus, adding to really strong consumer balance sheets and helping to lift corporate earnings sort of into the stratosphere. Uh, the the Federal Reserve was also tightening at a, at a faster and more aggressive pace, really, than any other major central bank. And that made the yield pickup in American financial markets immensely appealing to international investors. But the wind sort of started to change once we hit sort of peak pessimism in the euro area, UK and Japan, you know, and and a lot of that had to do with the fading of the energy price shock. And as momentum in the US started to show signs of deceleration. So, you know, what we've sort of seen percolate through the markets in, in the last quarter and a half here is expectations for Federal Reserve rate hikes have sort of reached terminal levels. Other central banks have started to catch up. Growth differentials have begun narrowing across the global economy. And all of that uh, has acted to diminish the dollar's appeal in relative terms. Yeah, and just to kind of expand on what Carl mentioned in terms of the growth differentials, I think uh, another big factor at play was just China's shift away from its zero COVID stance. So it was inevitable that China would join the rest of the world and adapt to you know, living with COVID. But the timing and the speed of the change that's been coming through has really caught markets off guard. So that rapid reopening and the prospect that China provides more stimulus to kind of underpin the, the economic rebound has actually seen all those very bleak growth expectations for 2023 stabilise. And things have actually, in terms of consensus thinking, have actually started to improve from that very peak pessimistic kind of viewpoint for for regions like Asia uh, and Europe. And that's obviously had a big flow through to kind of cyclical assets. 
So you've seen commodities, equities, and obviously FX, Euro, and Aussie have definitely benefited over the last uh, little while from, from that reopening story. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much for that. The Federal Reserve was obviously one of the biggest drivers of currencies in 2022. How do you see the interaction between the U.S. economy and the Fed policy this year, and how's that going to affect the markets? Uh, Karthik, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's going to be tricky. Um, we've had data o- already showing um, you know, the economy decelerating, as Carl mentioned. Retail sales and producer price inflation are cooling. But even though inflation has been rolling over, it's well above the Fed's comfort zone and unemployment's at historic lows. So the Fed has a dual mandate, and from their point of view, they're still far above their inflation mandate, and they think they've kind of oversatisfied their mandate for maximum sustainable employment. So I mean, I think the pace of hikes is going to slow, but even so, we could still get 50 or maybe 75 more basis point hikes. But the real issue is not so much where the terminal rate is. We have to take them really seriously, I think, when they say the bar to cutting rates anytime in 2023 is really high. Only way I think we get rate hike, rate cuts this year is if we get a really sharp slowdown. And that's not good news for the market. The other thing to remember, I think, and they've made this clear, is that they're scarred by what happened last year when inflation rebounded after it fell. And I think that's going to lead to add to their determination to leave rates at their peak for a while. They're also scared of repeating the 1970s where it's kind of stopped going inflation and, and rates. So I think the bar to actually cutting rates is much higher than the bar to pausing. Another thing that kind of worries me is their outlook for growth and employment seem inconsistent. They see growth this year at 0.5%, but they have unemployment at year end going up more than a percent from now. And we've never had that much of an increase in unemployment without also seeing a recession. Maybe this time is different. Maybe we get a soft landing, but I don't think it's going to be that easy. And even if the Fed manages to pull off this kind of so-called immaculate disinflation, and I'm not sure they can, even their messaging means we get growth scares and market jitters along the way. You know, we could get this kind of, oops, this doesn't add up moment for the market sometime around the middle of this year. And that means that, you know, maybe we see a reversal of the trend we've seen so far this year. We get a dollar recovery that's especially pronounced against assets that are really sensitive to global growth, like emerging markets, currencies and commodity exporters, Australian dollar, Canadian dollar. Thank you for that, Karthik. And uh, I mean, I absolutely understand what you're saying about the soft landing. A number of things have to fall into place for that to work out just perfectly. And that's not probable. Carl, next question for you while we're on the topic of Canada. The BOC seems to have taken a slightly more dovish stance than the Fed in recent months. What do you think's behind that stance and what are the implications going to be for the loony? Yeah, uh, no question. Policymakers have adopted a much more cautious tone in their communications recently. And and if you look at what markets are pricing right now, traders are increasingly convinced that the bank is preparing to pause and perhaps even end its tightening cycle right here. So, you know, if you look at what's sort of fundamentally happening under the surface, on the face of it, uh, the economy is performing above expectations. Uh, growth was likely almost twice as fast as the bank expected in the fourth quarter of 2022. Consumer spending remains remarkably robust, you know, defying 
many sort of bearish forecasts that are out there, including my own. Labor markets are still incredibly strong. You know, we had more than 100,000 jobs added last month. That came when consensus forecasts were set closer to 5,000 and the unemployment rate is is holding near record lows. And, And so, you know, to some extent, that's to be expected. Central bankers always talk about how monetary policy changes hit economies with long and variable lags. And so, you know, we all understand that it can take a while before rate hikes feed through to what businesses and households are doing. And, you know, I think the fundamental vulnerabilities in the Canadian economy are really quite significant. So we talked a lot in previous episodes about how high debt levels are in the Canadian household and corporate sectors. You know, we're well past levels that were seen back in the in, in 80s Japan, for example. And we also know that major components of GDP are beginning to weaken. So, you know, we have commodity exports that are declining with prices. We have inventory accumulation that's beginning to go into reverse. And of course, housing market activity is slowing really, really sharply. And, and so, you know, if you look at the bank's latest survey data, it shows that both businesses and consumers are turning increasingly pessimistic on the outlook. Now, all of that said, at the same time, inflation seems to be losing, losing steam. Headline prices are rising by less than expected. The bank's preferred measures, so the trim and median core measures, are both coming down fairly sharply. So, you know, there's good reasons here to think that policymakers will want to sort of wait and see how things shift in coming months before they make any additional adjustments. And, you know, how markets are looking at this is that ultimately right now with with two-year treasuries yielding almost 65 basis points more than the Canadian equivalents, it's pretty clear that, you know, traders expect the Federal Reserve to hike rates farther and then to cut them by less than the Bank of Canada over the next two years. So to Karthik's point earlier there, Although people do expect the Fed to pivot and to begin cutting by late this year, perhaps early next year, the Bank of Canada is you know, in, in a position where it might have to do it even more aggressively. And to sum all of that up, although we think that China's reopening could lift commodity prices and, and help the Canadian dollar generate a little bit of outperformance in the short term, we're sticking with our view that Canada is going to enter a pretty meaningful slowdown later this year as real estate markets worsen and over-indebted households cut consumption. So we think that the, the loony is going to experience a number of trend reversals through the year and end at slightly lower levels than today. As Karthik put it there quite eloquently, we might hit an oops moment at some point later this year. Thank you, Carl. I appreciate that. I wonder, though, those 100,000 jobs that were created, I mean, that's right over the holiday season. I'm curious to know how many of those jobs were seasonal. But uh, anyways, we'll, we'll move on. Uh, Peter, China's abrupt reversal of its COVID zero policies was one of the biggest surprises of the last quarter. What are the implications for global asset markets, commodities, currencies, bonds? What are your thoughts on that? In my view, it's China's decision to pivot and move away from zero COVID so quickly is something that will be quite impactful on the global economy this year. But in saying that, in line with the kind of whiplash kind of view, you know, there are various push-pull dynamics to kind of think about. And it may not be the one-way street that markets appear to currently be viewing it. So clearly in the short term, China's reopening can help cushion kind of global demand and alleviate some of those more acute pessimistic downside kind of growth scenarios that people were thinking about uh, on the back of all the rate hike tightening that's come through globally. And as you know, we have seen over the past year across a range of economies, when you end lockdowns, there is a big positive jolt across an economy as pent up demand and catch up production are unleashed. And you'd expect something similar in, in China. And it is a 
a major source of global activity so and demand for commodities so it's kind of improved growth pulse in china is is being priced into a lot of markets it's quite positive for for growth linked assets like equities and, and commodities and currencies like the euro aussie and, and broader asian fx and i think this theme can run a bit longer and can help support the Aussie and, and Euro in the short term. I don't think the impacts will ultimately be as straightforward as what the markets now seem to be kind of factoring in. You've got to think about it, you know, further out, China's reopening uh, could actually prove to be a bit of a double-edged sword and a case of be careful about what you wish for. And this is where markets could be kind of caught out towards the middle of, of this year. You know, think about, you know, risk markets the last few kind of weeks or a couple of months, they've really been buoyed by the view that inflation has peaked and, and we're going to see a meaningful deceleration in, in inflation this year, which in turn could allow central banks to kind of morph back into the stimulus providing kind of growth supporters that we're all used to after being kind of the single-minded inflation fighters over the past year. But China's reopening, I think, really complicates matters, in my view. So in the more medium term, you know, you think about stronger commodities, more accommodative financial conditions via higher equities, lower bond yields, tighter credit spreads, and even a weaker US dollar. Whilst they're kind of growth supportive near term, it may actually mean that inflation re-accelerates later this year, or at least holds at levels that are really uncomfortable for central banks. And it's really these second order inflation effects that don't really seem to be on the market's radar just yet. Could be something that emerges you know, later this year and, and generates some renewed turbulence across asset markets, because you know, macro-wise, could mean that central banks have to raise rates even further than what they'd like, or, or at least hold them for at higher levels for much longer. Uh, and this again will have further knock-on effects to growth, which aren't being priced now, and it will generate more volatility in, in all these asset classes. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, you make some excellent points. We will have to wait for 2023 to unfold to see how much of it comes to pass. Let's move on to the EU. Karthik, What's the outlook for the Eurozone economy and the Euro, in your opinion? Does this rally have legs? It's It's been pretty remarkable. Is this going to carry on? I mean, some of the recent rally is definitely luck. You know, as we know, we've had unseasonably warm weather in Europe, and that's held down gas prices, and that's helped business confidence, consumer confidence. But it's not just a temperature story. They did manage to improve energy efficiency, and they've diversified their supply. So that kind of gives a bigger cushion in energy supply and prices next year. And that feeds into the broader economy, feeds into confidence, feeds into kind of reduced need for rationing. And what we're seeing is we're seeing, you know, Wall Street houses back away from their predictions, very dire predictions they had for the European economy in 2023. And to me, that seems right. Now, in keeping with the theme of whiplash, I think we are going to have some twists and turns. But I want to focus right now on there should be more important things that are happening to me in Europe that are really much bigger shifts. And I'd say that, you know, what we've seen over the course of the last, last three years in particular is just a steady increase in their resilience, in the resilience of the Eurozone. Beginning with the pandemic and continuing with the Ukraine war, there's been increased cohesion, much more use of pan-EU fiscal measures. And one of the interesting things that's happening now is that the commission is looking at revamping the stability and growth pact. So you won't just have the 
uh, you know, pan-EU funding, but also measures to allow single governments more fiscal room, particularly for investment. And like everything in Europe, it's going to be tough negotiating, but I'm optimistic that we'll get some results from this. And one of the reasons is just because of what's happening with U.S. policy. The Biden administration is pushing pretty aggressive local content and subsidy measures to reshore in the U.S. And I think there's going to be a European response. And what that translates into in terms of how the Eurozone has traditionally operated and what it's transitioning towards, I put this as the EU is offering its members economic carrots and not just sticks. If you think about the last decade, I think there's something even bigger happening here, which is if you put fiscal policy back in play in the Eurozone as a tool to manage the business cycle, it changes the overall macro dynamic. You know, for the last decade, the Euro area has basically run tight fiscal policy, loose monetary policy, and it's been pretty happy with Euro weakness. That's changing. And I think that's a really big shift. Fiscal policy is getting looser. Monetary policy is getting tighter. And governments and the ECB see a weak euro as a problem, not as a growth solution. So all of that, you know, I think is part of my longer term euro positive view. But in keeping with the idea of whiplash, there's definitely going to be um, some twists and turns along the way. Some of those could come from worries about a recession in the U.S. Some of those could come from this dynamic with global inflation uh, resulting from a Chinese reopening that, that Peter mentioned. So I'd say maybe some hiccups in the rally over the uh, shorter term, you know, around the middle of the year, which we all seem to think is where the trouble will come. But I'm optimistic over the longer term. Karthik, thank you. Appreciated your comments about the EU having now more carrots for its members, not just sticks. Speaking of sticks, uh, we're going to move to Great Britain. And Carl, this is for you. Sunak, his elevation to PM, it's given the pound a breather. We can all admit that and agree with it. Is the worst over for the sterling or is there more trouble on the horizon? Yeah, it sure does feel like the, uh, the moment of sort of peak pessimism on the UK has passed. And it's very clear that a big part of the pound's outperformance in the last few months comes down to the change in leadership, what they called the moron risk premium <laughs> that was assigned to British assets under the trust administration has largely been wiped out. And, you know, the new leadership, Rishi Sunak and, and Jeremy Hunt, are seen as having sort of a, a less ideological more realistic approach to setting policy. So, you know, if you sort of take a step back from that, to some extent, the the Tory party's previous illusions of, about being able to sort of eat your cake and have it too have been demolished in recent months. And, and so, you know, that sort of folds into other shifts in the political landscape. Investors are now betting on a much more pragmatic relationship with the EU. Polls are showing that citizens increasingly regret the Brexit decision. So, you know, politicians are being pushed toward taking sort of a more compromising approach. And, you know, this is folding into sort of a an improvement in the outlook for cross-channel trade. So, you know, more access to, to European markets, less paperwork and regulation uh, in terms of moving goods across. All of that could, you know, bolster the, the UK economy in, in years ahead. And at the same time, you're also looking at an improvement in the pound's fundamentals. Uh, so domestic demand remains surprisingly strong. The current account deficit is shrinking as energy prices fall. And you have rising wage demands that are, you know, really sort of pushing upward on inflation and keeping the Bank of England on a tightening trajectory. 
there's definitely more dissent, you know, among policymakers, but overall uh, rates are expected to continue climbing, which, you know, puts the Bank of England a little bit ahead of other other major currency blocks. And, and so that is lifting real yields into, you know, into positive territory and making the pound attractive for international investment. So, you know, although there is lots and lots of challenges ahead, you know, and, and we know that Brexit will be a threat. We know that the pound does tend to sell off when we have a global risk off episode. All of those things are, are, you know, clear and present dangers. But on balance, we think that further gains are to be had. And, and we expect that, you know, sort of in an interesting dynamic, we expect correlations with the euro to grow stronger over time as the relationship is repaired in the months and years ahead. Yeah, and I would tend to agree with that, Carl. I mean, obviously, like you'd said, there is an increasing regret of the Brexit decision. But as they start to repair that relationship, we should see smoother sailing ahead. Peter, we're going to come back to you. Uh, Recent BOJ actions have not only sparked a rally in the yen, but it's also led to fears about spillovers into other global markets. Do we need to start worrying about the JGBs again? Worry? I don't think so. But what is happening in Japan and with JGBs should be something investors, and particularly in FX markets, keep a kind of watchful eye over, over this year. People often forget how important a player in global capital flows and markets, Japan is, and its size is, is too big to ignore. BOJ policy changes and the implications from rising JGB yields, you know, I do think will be a source of cross-asset volatility that markets really haven't had to contend with for, for quite some time. Um, the timing of the BOJ shift is also particularly interesting and noteworthy. I think the repricing of the global inflation outlook and you know the, the conga line of central banks that rapidly moved rates up last year generated an enormous amount of volatility across asset markets. And just as things look like they were settling down with markets starting to you know, factor in a peak in rates, you know, the Bank of Japan really came through just before Christmas and threw a bit of a spanner in the works by announcing an adjustment um, to its yield curve control policy. You know, what, while it was framed as being largely due to functionality issues, uh, there were clearly some policy normalization elements to it as well. So when you look at the kind of you know, global inflationary environment, upward shift in global interest rates, that has an impact on on Japanese kind of policymakers thinking, but domestically as well in Japan, finally, after many years of no movement, like the inflation dynamics look to be changing, you know, wages are starting to lift, business and consumer inflation expectations are edging up. And of course, there's functionality issues for the BOJ, you know, they hold more than 50% of of JGBs now. So they need to do steps to normalize policy just to kind of quell those functionality problems in the market. So I think markets were a bit disappointed by the BOJ's decision to not do another change at the January meeting, but I think it, it looks to be a matter of when it makes more changes. You know, the analyst community looked to be anticipating the BOJ to either widen out the trading range in its yield curve target, or even jettison the whole uh, program over the next few months. And I think it's particularly more likely once the current governor, Kuroda, steps down in April. So this sea change in in BOJ policy really just points to more volatility 
in in bond markets and and the upward bias in kind of JGB yields likely to continue for for a number of quarters. And that I think in turn, given the correlations can keep the global interest rate complex kind of higher and more volatile than would otherwise have been the case as these kind of capital flow dynamics play out. So, you know, investors typically have very short-term memories, but when you look back at the implementation of Arbenomics and the BOJ's kind of massive QE program over 2014-15, uh, you know, it really illustrates how meaningful changes in Japanese policy can have on the US dollar and broader asset markets. So I think it's it's right to, to kind of view the BOJ's policy adjustments as a, a source of volatility for markets this year. And it definitely wasn't something people were thinking about up until the change in December. But in contrast to the past, we, you know, where it was wave after wave of extraordinary measures designed to provide more stimulus, lower JGB yields, and weaken the yen as capital left Japan, you know, things are now looking to be moving in the opposite direction and all kind of supports a, a stronger yen view over the next year or two. Peter, that's great. Thank you very much. And I think uh, it can't be understated. You're absolutely right that how, how often people forget what an important player in global flows and markets Japan can be. Wrap up with a final question for the broader group. Carl, we'll start with you. What do you think might be the biggest surprises awaiting us in 2023? What should people be paying more attention to? Well, people should always pay more attention to FX markets, of course. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, the biggest surprise could be just how bumpy things get. You know, markets are overwhelmingly positioned for a world in which U.S. consumer demand weakens, the economy slows, the Federal Reserve moves on to a more accommodative footing. But if the last few years have shown us anything, it's that we're not experiencing a normal business cycle. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of false dawns and, and sort of market panics play out in the months ahead as businesses and consumers struggle to reconcile what will still be very deeply contradictory fundamentals and as investors question you know some deeply held assumptions things like the fed always cuts rates when they see signs of softness in financial markets you know either way the the nature of currency market volatility is likely to be very different the clear cut trends you know like dollar strength Euro weakness, et cetera, that dominated in 2022 are now gone. And we're looking at a situation in which we're very likely to see a series of really rapid overshoots and reversals as bullwhip effects play out in the economy and markets. And, and to some extent, I think we've seen some of that already this year, but you know, there's more to come. And, and so the key thing here is not to trade the markets as if they're going to trend in a nice linear way and to ultimately understand that the trading ranges could widen out and could be extremely erratic through the year ahead. That makes sense. Karthik, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's, it's funny that uh, Peter mentioned uh, investors with uh, short-term memories. Uh, I'm struck by, you know, I think that's true, but I'm also struck by something which might be a misplaced long-term memory. And that's because I'm thinking about these debt ceiling shenanigans, which seem to be starting up again in the U.S., particularly with the Republican House. And I'm wondering if the market might be a little too complacent about this. You know, people remember that S&P downgraded the U.S. in 2011 around something like this. And then both the dollar and treasuries rallied. I think the world has changed a little bit in some respects since then. One is obviously 
you know, the freezing of Russian reserve assets, which seems to have raised some eyebrows among other substantial reserve holders, uh, dollar reserve managers, including China, the Gulf. I, I don't want to go too far with this. There's a lot of end of the dollar system type stuff, uh, you know, dollar apocalypse type stuff that's out there. I don't subscribe to that, but I do wonder if might be complacent to think it's going to be exactly like 2011 all over again. Yeah, we saw what happened last time with that, and it wasn't pretty. I agree. <laughs> uh, Peter? Yeah, I think really just touches on what we've kind of been discussing and, and really piggybacks on what uh, Carl mentioned. So I think the markets, in terms of their kind of positioning now at the moment, they seem a bit complacent uh, in terms of the risks around inflation. And a lot of that is due to the kind of, I think, the short-sightedness around the China's uh, reopening. So the double-edged sword relating to China's reopening that I mentioned earlier, I think can garner a bit more attention and surprise markets later this year. So you know, positive growth story is currently getting all the attention, but stronger demand coming out of the world's second biggest economy, you know, less restrictive financial conditions from this renewed bout of optimism and a weaker dollar can have kind of inflationary uh, consequences. You know, it can quickly scuttle expectations that inflation is miraculously going to decelerate back down towards central bank's target later this year and they'll be able to cut rates and provide growth support very quickly and this is particularly the case i think for the us where you know a weaker dollar generates higher import prices at the time when services inflation because of very strong wage growth is, is still present so you know central banks like the fed I still think may be forced to do more rather than less. You know, they're very you know, attuned students of history and they don't want to repeat the mistakes of the 70s. Or at the very least, they'll need to hold rates for in restrictive territory for longer. So that, that bar to cutting rates is quite high, which the markets aren't kind of factoring in. So, you know, repricing in bond markets later this year could happen again. And this will cascade into kind of growth assets and, and generate, an, you know, intermittent bouts of, of FX volatility. So it's not going to be a kind of straight line story as what we saw last year. Well, thank you, Peter. And thank you all for being on the show, folks. Our guests have been Peter Jurgasevich, Karthik Sankaran, and Carl Shimada. I'm your host, Rob Bensick. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you want to keep up with more news and views, make sure to subscribe wherever you're tuning in from. FX and Focus is a podcast written and produced by CorePay, a fleet core company. The opinions expressed are those of our guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of CorePay or Fleet Corps Incorporated. To submit questions or comments or to recommend a topic, please email us at podcast at corepay.com.